All over the world, Roman Catholics bow down and pray to statues of Mary. And some Protestants call them Christians. Should they? Welcome to The Conquering Truth. I'm Dan Horn. I'm Jonathan Sides. I'm Charles Churchill. And I'm Joshua Horn. According to Wikipedia, there's something like 2.4 billion Christians in the world. But of that number, like 1.2 of them, about half, a little bit more than half, are Roman Catholic. The Protestants are about 880 million. But yet they lump everybody together and say it's one group of 2.2 billion or 2.4 billion. So when the Reformation started, people were saying, well, the church can be reformed, which was the only church at that time was the Roman Catholic Church. But as it went on and there was... Various things happened, and they came to the conclusion that it was impossible to reform it, that it just had to be a new—the church had to split. The true believers had to split from the Roman Catholics because the Roman Catholics were doing a lot of idolatry and a lot of idolatrous practices. And they they even got to the point where in confessions they said that the pope was that antichrist. Now we're, you know, at the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, the Lutheran Church actually joined back with the Roman Catholics. Should— is this a good thing, or are we, again, accepting idolatry in the church? I mean, it's a, it's a pretty important question, and it's one that, you know, it isn't just uh, theoretical in nature, but it, it has an impact on, you know, the lives of a lot of people who are, you know, Protestants active in their church. Because, you know, you have issues like, uh, you know, a lot like abortion and things like that. Catholics and Protestants, should they work together? Are they pushing for the same goals you have if you want to vote for christians for political office well a lot of you know people who are quote-unquote christians are catholic should you vote for them and and, you know even your neighbor if your neighbor's a catholic should you evangelize them or should you say you know i'm glad to hear that you're right with god and it's the um, important questions that affect us and it's really important as we think about it that what we're talking about when we say a roman catholic's christian is we're not trying to ask the question of can someone who's a Roman Catholic somewhere become a Christian and there be a Christian who is still calling themselves a Roman Catholic for a period of time? We're not even trying to say, is it impossible for there to be somewhere a, a priest who becomes who is a Christian and who preaches the gospel in his... But what we're saying is, is, is Roman Catholicism, is that group that calls itself Catholic, is that set of ideals, is that Christian? Is When you look at it in its totality, when you look at it, when you... What should, what should your expectation be? Is this a Christian thing? Are the people there? Should you look at them and say, these are Christians in general? Or should you look at it and go, this is a pagan religion? I mean, that's really – this is the normative thing that we should be talking about. And another thing, too, is it, it, we're not saying uh, Protestant church versus Catholic church, which one is the true church? Because I think there's a, a lot of Protestant churches that arguably are worse than Catholic churches. You know, if you have a Protestant church that denies – the you know inspiration of scripture denies the divinity of christ you know they maybe even they deny that there's really a god that you need to actually believe in you know how is that any better than a catholic church which at least you know despite all their problems at least believes in you know the nicene creed etc and you know has a lot of you know the historic things that have been said this is what constitutes sound doctrine at least they have a, a lot of that you know, they have some things right. So, you know, which is worse, we're definitely not saying that the Pro- all Protestants are great. And what about the Catholics? Well, especially when you look at, I mean, 
you look at that categorization that I started in the introduction with, where you have another 350 billion people or something, excuse me, 350 million people that that aren't in either Roman Catholics or Protestants, and that's the Mormons, that's the Jehovah Witnesses, that's the Orthodox. I mean, the Orthodox, all of which are worse than Roman Catholics, even as bad as I would argue that Roman Catholicism is. You mean worse is. in the sense of form of sound doctrine, right? The the They have more lies. They deceive people about who God is in more ways than Roman Catholicism does. And I think Roman Catholicism deceives people greatly about the nature of God. But still, these other ones are worse. It's obviously at the time of the Reformation, there were priests that then came out and said, yeah, they realized, they saw it. You know, Luther was a monk, and he saw it and said, I need to leave the church. Or the church threw him out, and he said he was happy to go, depending on how you want to frame the story. But but when you look at that, so it's not saying that somebody couldn't be in there, and especially they could be in Roman Catholicism when there isn't another choice. And that's kind of what's happening again, is that a lot of Protestant churches are basically becoming Roman Catholic. And so it's important to recognize what are the Roman Catholic doctrines, because a lot of them you'll find in quote-unquote Protestant churches, things that the Reformers would have been appalled at are now widely accepted. So I think I, I need you to unpack that bit for me a little bit. When you say a lot of Protestant churches are effectively becoming Roman Catholic, are you talking worldwide? Are you talking third world? Are you saying this is something that happens in American Protestant churches? I think all of the above, including American Protestant churches. And you look at you look at the mainline Protestant churches, and most of the mainline Protestant churches are very Roman Catholic in their structure. You know, the big ones. And so when you look at that and you see their practices, and it really does boil down to one thing, right? Roman Catholicism effectively is works-based righteousness, and that's what a lot of churches are going to. And if you decide that you're going to go to works-based righteousness, the Roman Catholic model works really well. That's why they have 1.2 billion people doing it. So everybody starts to adopt Roman Catholic-type things because it works, if you're going to reject the idea of salvation by faith alone. Can you be more specific about, like, when you say that, what groups are you referring to and in what ways? So, and I think specifically the doctrine of works, is works-based righteousness. And when you think about it, a seeker-sensitive church is about works-based righteousness because you do the things that make the person feel good about that they're worshiping God. Not that they're obeying God, not that they're submitting to God, not that they've been born again, but that they're doing the things that make them feel good about worshiping God. So it goes from there to Methodism. Methodism is largely just this method of the things that you do to basically be a social club, which would be very Roman Catholic right. in terms of saying this is how you're right with God is through social work and through helping your community. Not that those things are bad, but those things are not a way to reconcile you with God. You need a lot more than that. And so I think it's spread – it's widespread in churches, and you can see it from music. You can see it, right, because the Roman Catholic idea, because it is about the person and not God. The focus is the person. Roman Catholic churches, they play music that's supposed to make you feel spiritual. That's why they have organs. That's why the music reverberates off the wall. That's why it gives you a certain feel. Well, that's not that much different than Hillsong. They're doing the same thing. It's the same technique. The music sounds a lot different, but it's the same technique because it's still based on the Roman Catholic idea that it's your feeling that you're worshiping God, that that's what makes you a Christian. If you push on Roman Catholicism, they'll say it's salvation by faith alone, but they don't mean it's salvation by faith alone. They mean it's salvation by faith that is the works, or it's related to the works, 
And they also say that a loan shouldn't be there, but it should kind of be there, but it's not real. I mean, the right. Roman Catholic, you know, the catechism is very confused because it, it changes all the time. And they've also largely rejected the idea of hell, which is very common in Protestant churches to reject the idea of hell. And so there's no eternal judgment. God, Jesus Christ is not the judge. I mean, there's lots of other things. But in the end, most of them are saying that the way that you're saved is by Yes, you're saved by faith, but you have to come to church, you have to do this work, you have to do these things, and it's not looking, saying, this is assurance of salvation. They're saying, this is part of salvation. Right. And so they would add works to it. Right. And so this, and I think we did a podcast recently about, you know, the difference between, like, true Reformed thought is that God is the center of all things. The true Roman Catholic thought is man is the center of all things. The true... Right. The true seeker-sensitive thought is man is the center of all things. And that's directly tied to works-based righteousness because it's the works of men that you're supposed to exalt. Right. If you look at the strict Arminian position, the strict Arminian position, which would be like the Assemblies of God position, is if you sin, that means you need to be saved again. Right. And so they have this this view that justification and salvation, salvation and sanctification, justification, they're all kind of mingled together. There isn't a point where God says, you know, your sins have been paid for by the blood of Christ, and so now you're being sanctified. They would go, you sinned, so you lost your salvation, you need to repent and come back. So they merge salvation together, and it's... The Roman Catholics, though, would say that the power of the church is strong enough to overcome that. So that would be a difference between that and the Protestant denominations. But but part of it, too, is, I mean, they have uh, purgatory, like a pseudo-hell. So you definitely need workspace righteousness to get out of pseudo-hell. Except that they've decided all that's spiritual now. They've pretty much given up on hell and heaven. They're amillennial amillennial in their purgatory. (laughs) You should cut that. (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, the the reality is that the Roman Catholic doctrine, because it is appealing to men, and men, you know, Marxism has has had a huge impact on the world to turn turn the world towards more materialism. If it's more materialism, then all of a sudden hell doesn't become this real place with real torment. Hell just becomes you're in a place where you're comfortable, you're separated from God, which is more the – Jordan the Peterson. Roman Catholic or the Jordan <laughs> Peterson view. But it's, it's right. So they're, because it's about man, they're changing everything because when you make it about man, everything changes. But looking towards works and saying, okay, looking towards not just the work, your work, but the work of men, right? It's right. not when I'm talking about workspace. It's not rigid says, adherence to this thing, it's, it's in the, but in the end, you're, it's, like it's looking what your at the, focus is on. It's, it's what looking at the Pope as is, is infallible. It's all these other things that tie together where you're exalting man, and it's about the worship of man, which is why they bow down before statues of Mary, right? I mean, the, or St. Peter or St. Paul, or that's why they have all these statues everywhere, because they're exalting man, and it's about the worship of man. One of the verses that they that they ignore when they talk about it, right? Romans 4, 4 through 7. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also described the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. So when you look at this, right, Paul's being really clear, and this is after he said, you know, that it's you're you're justified by or by faith alone, without works of the law and without deeds of the law. 
but then he and they'll they'll argue well those aren't deeds of the law those are good deeds so because the law is bad so doing you have to do good deeds plus faith is how you're justified not the law but when you get to Romans 4, it's going, if you do any work, any work at all, all you're doing is what you're supposed to be doing. So then if you just got salvation from that, it's a payment. It's not grace. Right. It's grace because it is by faith and not by works. And so the Bible's very explicit about it, but the Roman Catholics don't use verses like these. They use other verses, and, and unfortunately— you know, in the recent centuries, you know, I'll give it some time. The verses that people are coming back with, they're coming back with verses where they're, where the Roman Catholics have built arguments, so you can find arguments easily against them, even though they're twisting the Greek, they're doing other things. But, but you know, the scripture is very consistent in this teaching. One of the verses that a lot of times they would try to use is James two twenty one through twenty five. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works, and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? And so you can see, I mean, they're using this when it says, you can see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. They go, boom, right there, Scripture says it. But you also see in James that James keeps the same order when he puts the emphasis on when he talks about faith and talks about works. And he says, I will show you my, you know, I'll show you my faith by my works. And he's very clear that the works flow from faith. And so, I mean, there's this part of it where they're, they're trying to make where this description of justification, which is not a... It's not trying to describe justification in the way that like a confession would or a legal document would. It's not trying to handle it in the way that when you talk about the doctrine of justification. But they want to make this into the argument that justification is by something other than faith. But it's also the context is very clear, right? Because the context is Abraham when he was justified. He wasn't justified by faith when he sacrificed Isaac. And so it's saying when he sacrificed Isaac— that that showed his works proved his faith. He was justified by faith before that, according to Scripture. Right. Also, Abraham Rahab, believed and got into him. It was kind of righteousness, right? Right. And then years later, like you know, uh, twenty years later or something, nineteen years later, somewhere in that ballpark, is when he sacrifices Isaac or goes right. to sacrifice Isaac. So the two are not connected in that way. Rahab, the same thing. When he goes, when the spies go into Jericho. Everybody there believed that Israel would take them over and destroy the city. But Rahab, who believed like everybody else, she acted on her belief, which shows that her belief, which she had before, was real. Right. So the two examples James uses doesn't fit their argument. And, it, and it, like I said, and James framed his argument by showing that, that works flow from faith. Right, but the is, two examples that he's using specifically to argue this right. point are examples that show that it's the works are produced by faith. They are not joined with faith except faith produces works. Right. So I could see people listening thus far and saying and, and wondering whether we're proving that the Roman Catholic Church is not a real church or not not a true church, which 
I guess we haven't said that yet, but I think that's where we're headed. But because, you know, I mean, you said that they, you know, that the catechism is confusing. You know, you talk to a Catholic person and say, well, do you believe in faith? They were saved by faith alone. And they might very well say, yes, they believe we're saved by faith alone. And so can we say that, well, they're not a true church because, you know, they have this equivocation and, you know, and, uh, and issues with faith versus works, but can we say, you know, they're teaching heresy on this issue um, in, in a way that, you know, is convincing? And I think that the answer is it's how that works out, right? Because we're stating what their faith is, but, but faith actually works itself out, out in practice, right? And so if you, if you then turn around and say, okay, we're going to exalt the saints, that's the problem that's manifested by their misunderstanding of salvation, and so you can see lots of things that show how they don't understand justification. They don't understand how people are saved. And so because of that, they have practices that are idolatry and that they aren't Christian. So this is a, this is a root issue. It's a, that it's produces all kinds serious. of – it's kind of the same thing, that faith produces these works. Their beliefs produce works, and you can look at those works, and that shows you their faith, which is what James says. And so you can look at the things that they do, and that proves that – they aren't trusting in God. You're saying you know a tree by its fruit, right? right. I, mean, I mean, right. And the other one, and the the later ones are easier to say. The scripture teaches that you should not do that. Versus this one, you know, I mean, there's difficult verses either way. Not that it's unclear, but it is it is harder to prove, you know, as definitively. Except that you can say the Roman Catholic Church has. You can look at their actions against someone like Martin Luther, who was making arguments about faith in the way that he was. You can look at their arguments against the Protestants, who, you know, they'll join with Mormons. They'll, I mean, they're very, very, very clear. They do not, they are not willing to reconcile with the Protestant belief, with the Protestant Oh, their position. catechism says that Mormons go to, go to heaven. They say Muslims go to heaven. The only people that don't go to heaven are Protestants. Right. And so, so I mean, their catechism is such that, I mean, they're. You know, and this is an old catechism. I'm sure they've changed it because they're trying to to woo back the Protestants. But a catechism from 30 or 40 years ago, this is what they're saying, that you can be a Muslim, that's not a problem. But if you're a Protestant, then obviously you're in rebellion. And so in a sense, when you're saying that their fruit, one of their fruits is their own words and their own position against the Protestant position of, of, of salvation, they're very clear that it is that it's not compatible. And when they're pushed, they will add works in a place like Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4 says, 4, 10 through 11, For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. They don't hold this. They don't hold that you should rest from your works. They say that your works are what continue your salvation. Sometimes. But they also say other things because... You know, one of the problems with the Roman Catholic Church is it syncretizes with whoever's around it. And so they'll use much different language in the U.S. than they would in, in Nigeria, than they would in, you know, a place like Turkey. I mean, their language changes every place that they are because they steal language from the people around them. Because they lie. Because they lie, which is, a you know, <laughs> Isaiah says, my children do not lie. But they lie, so that's why part of it, it's hard to pin them down. But there are things that you can pin them down in. And that's why this conversation being had by a bunch of Americans is a more interesting conversation because the American Catholic Church, in many ways, has been Protestantized. Absolutely. It has been—if 
it's been constrained by the structures of a dominant Protestant culture in in North America, especially in the United States, in ways that it hasn't been in, say, South America or Italy, etc. And I think it is worth noting that voodoo priests in Haitia, they are in Haiti, Haitian voodoo, voodoo priests, they have to be Roman Catholic priests. I mean, this is the level of syncretization that they go, is that they'll go and they'll join with with pagan natural religions. I mean, it's there, there's no limit to their willingness to change their doctrine, to mold themselves, to attract people from people groups that are near them. And so, yes, when you talk about the American Roman Catholic Church, it is much more Protestant in the words that it uses and the ways that it makes its arguments than other, church, other Roman Catholic churches in the world. I mean, because it was a long time ago, but when they came to South America where they're, you know, the Aztecs and Mayans are doing human sacrifices, the Catholics, they whitewash the temples— so that you can't see the blood anymore. They have the priests, you know, clean up a bit, and they baptize them all and say, okay, now you guys are all Catholics. And they remove the statue of the snake, and they replace it with right. the statue yes, of Mary, yes, with holding, the, holding you know, baby Jesus. Other than that, they and stop do the same. People. Stop you killing you people. Can't, you can't do human sacrifice anymore. But other than that, you're good to go. You know, we'll, we can make you Catholics in one day. So that Catholicism is obviously a lot different than the Catholicism that you see in America today. Right, and you look in Mexico and their big holiday is the Day of the Dead and stuff. That's all Roman Catholic, you know, worship of the dead and just some very disgusting things that we look at it and think that it's kind of like Halloween. No, it's not. It's very much a religious ceremony, or at least it was until the last couple of decades. You just got in talking about all the different uh, all the different means by which they are right, willing to syncretize with other religions and things, but while they're willing to do that, at their core, the reason they want to do that is they still have their core traditions that they hold to. Like Joshua said, you can make the, they can make you Catholic in a day. There were things they were going to require of those priests there that had to be carried out to kind of consider them to be Catholic. And the one that he mentioned was baptism, right? Right. That you have to be baptized. You know, they don't reject that idea, and it doesn't matter what religion you're coming from. They still want the idea of pulling you out. So they still do the, the infant baptism. They still, you know, those things, they're going to happen all over the world. Right. And, and Scripture talks about this. I mean, in Mark 7, 9, he said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. And, I mean, and that's really exemplified by the, the Roman Catholic Church. And it's really it's exemplified by, by all false religions, in a sense. I mean, there's a part of it where this is what you do. is they, they hate the commandments of God because they love their own traditions. They love their own, they love their own version of things that, 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 that glorifies the, the thoughts that they have, that glorifies the ideas that they believe are central. And, like I said, baptism, whether it's the mass, whether it's, you know, these— the, and, and again, it's a twisted mass. It's a twisted communion. It's not, it's not the communion that Christ gave. It's not the communion that we're commanded to keep. It's their own version of it. It, it focuses on their own aspects and their own, their own distorted view of Christianity. And so, like, you know, things that would be held throughout the world with Roman Catholicism would be, like, Protestant churches say there are two sacraments, right? There's Lord's Supper and Baptism. They would say they're seven, and I probably can't name them all, but like extreme unction and ordination, ordination of priests, that's a, that's a sacrament. Marriage is a sacrament. They take things that the Bible doesn't say are under the authority of the church. Well, obviously, ordaining priests would be, but they say that there's a Or transfer. pastors. Well, <laughs> pastors, excuse me. Um, Another is separate issue. <laughs> yeah, but, but there's kind of this, you know, they add all these other traditions— 
and you know celibacy for priests. There's a tradition that's all over the world, and there's a, and it's not chastity for priests, by the way. It's celibacy for, for priests. Obviously, we all know if you've paid any attention to what's happened in the Roman Catholic Church in the United States, there's not a whole push for chastity. There never has been in the Roman Catholic Church. You're just not allowed to marry because if you marry, then your inheritance goes outside the church, and so it, it's about money, but yet they portray it as something different, but because it's about money, that's something they'll enforce. So that's like everywhere they have that tradition where they're not to marry. Well, where do you see that in Scripture? I mean, it's very clear from like First Timothy 3 that, you know, you have to be the husband of one wife. And, and I mean, it comes to the point where things that you would think, oh, well, you know, Protestants have this and Catholics have this. In fact, the traditions are such, and there's so much baggage that comes along with the Catholicism that it ends up being something that's completely different. Like like prayer, like prayer means one thing to Protestants, but with Catholics, I mean, now I'm not, they're, I, I, they probably do the Protestant prayers sometimes, some some of them do, but for them prayer is a thing with the rosary and saying, saying the Lord's Prayer and repetition and something that's just completely different than how Protestants think about prayer getting that from scripture. I mean, they have this tradition that you can't get in scripture that this is the only thing that you do is recite these, you know, rote prayers. Yeah, Matthew 6, 7 says, and when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. And in Roman Catholicism, you know, they have their liturgy that they say the same prayers every week, and there's never any variation to it in terms of the response of reading. They can you know, print it in books. And so you're just, I mean, obviously, if you have special services and stuff, it's different. But, and so they just think that going and saying these words, that this makes you right with God and makes you pleasing to God. Right. And here's, there, here's a point where we've gotten down to something where there's a teaching at the church for, you know, that hundreds of years that's clearly against the basic, you know, reading of scripture. And it's very interesting because it, it compares this to a practice of the heathen. I mean, this, so this is, this is not just those who are not Christians. This is those who know nothing of God. You know what I mean? This is, the, you know, I mean, this is very, very specific because he doesn't say this necessarily of the other Jews who have been ta- – you know what I mean? This is right. – it's very specific. He's t- so he's saying – Now he does accuse the Pharisees of doing it. So. Right. But I mean, but in the end, but what is – but his point is, is this is those who know – you know, heathen is definitely a – it is a – it is a specific pejorative sort of term. Which means these are people who you shouldn't even look at and go, well, they have a, they have a good form of Christianity even though they don't have salvation. I, we've used the word syncretism a couple times, um, and that's I think it's relevant to unpack that a little bit right here. What do we mean by syncretism? Well, well, syncretism is when you have sort of this core kernel of, hey, I'm going to worship God plus. I want to add something to that. And and you can add things to it by just adding these traditions on, or you can add things to it by becoming like the culture that's around you, you know, bringing in your little kernel, your your core doctrines. Which is why I said it's very much like seeker-sensitive churches. And then just piling things on top of that, just adding things to it. And and you you want to say, you know, if you want to compare syncretism to just pure idolatry, you think, oh, maybe the idolatry is worse. But— just go and do a survey of your Old Testament history. Just read through the historical books in the Old Testament, and it's really hard. It is really hard to find a time where the children of Israel stopped worshiping God. 
meaning that they didn't mm-hmm. have a form of we are going to worship Yahweh, that's his temple over there, that's his tabernacle, something like that. What happens when God says that they're not worshiping anymore is not that they've stopped those forms. It's that they've added onto those forms. Then instead of just worshiping God, they're worshiping God plus Baal. They're worshiping God plus whatever local deities. It's it's this thing where the children of, of God, the people who call themselves by the name of God, have said, hey, we want these local gods too. And we shouldn't think that syncretism is somehow, you know, this, oh, minor little thing, watch out for that. No, this was core to the nature of rebellion in the Old Testament. And so when we talk about the Roman Catholic Church and talk about syncretism and talk about these rituals and these traditions, realize we're talking about something that was the way that the children of Israel fell away from God was, and and you can say this is true with the the way that the, the history of the Roman Catholic Church develops. At the beginning of what we would call the Roman Catholic Church, it wasn't that bad. Right. It takes time for these things to to adhere and, and accrete on the, you know, like barnacles, just sort of adding themselves on until all of a sudden you have this thing that you can't even recognize anymore. Which is exactly, I mean, I... You know, it's exactly what happened with with Judaism and, you know, at the time when Christ comes, and that's what he's rebuking them for, is that you're taking the traditions of men, you've decided it's more important how you wash your hands instead of the hand washing was about when you go into the holy place to minister to God or when you offer burnt offerings. But instead of talking about that, it became whenever you eat, you have to wash hands. And so it's taking a kernel of truth, and they take it and they twist it and make it into something else. You know, another another example that would be very Roman Catholic is the idea of confession, because the Bible does say you're supposed to confess, right? In 1 John 1, 8 through 10, it says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So confession is a serious doctrine, but nowhere in there does it say to confess to a priest. They take what's a core truth and they twist it and they use like James 5, verse 16. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So now all of a sudden they take that and they say a righteous man. Well, the priests are righteous because they've received grace from the Pope through the the sacrament of ordination. So therefore they have special grace. So they're obviously the righteous man that's being talked about in James, which is a twisting of the scripture. So therefore the only ones you can confess to are priests. Well, and then all of a sudden the priest is the one that's saying you're forgiven and that you're forgiven if you do penance, if you do, which is almost always, I mean, I'm sure if it's really serious and there's other things, but it's almost always you have to say this many Hail Marys. You have to say the rosary this many times. You have to say the Lord's Prayer this many times. It's you will be cleansed through the repetition. And so that's how they think that you receive forgiveness so that the priest can say, do this and you're forgiven, which is a really serious thing because forgiveness doesn't come from a priest. But yet in the Roman Catholic system, it definitely does. Or forgiveness does come from a priest, but it comes from the high priest, Jesus Christ, <laughs> who is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And not after the order of Rome. <laughs> right. And, yeah, Christ is the high priest, but the reason that he can forgive sins is because he is God. Right. Because God alone is the only one that can forgive sins. It's not his priesthood that makes him able right. to forgive sin. It's the fact that he's God. 
And so a Roman Catholic priest is not God, and they're not able to forgive sin. And even the, the Pharisees understood this. Mark 2, 6 and 7 are the scribes. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? He said that the, the man's sins were forgiven, and they go, only God can do that. But that's not the Roman Catholic view. The Roman Catholic view is that the, the priest that's appointed by the pope because he has the pope sitting as the vicar of Christ, sitting in the position of Christ, that he can say, I've taught you that you should say this is worth ten Hail Marys and three you know, our fathers, and then your sins are forgiven. And so they announce forgiveness of sins, so they put themselves in the place of God, which is kind of the root doctrine. The root problem is that they put man in the place of God. And this is very clear if you go all the way back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. They understood that priests could not forgive sins. Priests did not have that authority. The high priest, Caiaphas, had to go in and offer a sacrifice for his own sins because he could not forgive sins. And so, I mean, it's very clear. Right, if I mean, he p- could forgive sins, why wouldn't he forgive his own sins? And right. he didn't forgive his own sins. And, another, and an issue with this whole thing is um, that, that they have— created this distinction where there are priests who are in a special category rather than all all believers being priests. Um, they, they have just the, the, the priests ordained by the institution of the church are, are priests. And we should just recognize that as soon as you put man in the center of things, that that's what always happens, right? Is that, you know, that's what Arianism is, the idea that, you know, that's why Constantine wanted the religion to be Arian because he goes, well, if somebody can become a god, I'll be that god. And so as soon as you put man at the center, you're going to create a special class of men, which is exactly what they did. Instead of saying the priesthood of all believers, they go, there's a special group that are priests and everybody else isn't priests. They're just laity. And it's something that scripture's very clear about, that we're being built up into a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And that means that to say that you have one group of people who are the priests is against what scripture is teaching. And they do the same thing with the, the way that they use the word saints. It's you create a special class of people, people who are extra righteous, who then get approved by the church for this title of sainthood after their death. And for example, John 4, verses 23 to 24. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So the Catholics, a big part of Catholicism is the worship of saints. And here God is saying that he's seeking people to worship God, not people to worship saints who worship God. You know, you have all through Scripture, you have a lot of people praying. You never see them praying to saints. They had that opportunity. They could have been praying to saints, but they weren't praying to saints. They were praying to God. And so it doesn't, you know, it, and they play word games about they 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 worship the saints, but they don't adore the saints, or the other way around. It doesn't really matter. It's just games that they're playing when they are create, putting idols in the place of God. Especially since some of the, the, the term for worship is to bow down, right? In Hebrew, it's to bow down, and they bow down all the time. They bow down before the saints. They bow down before their statues. So to say it's not worship, it's simply twisting words that in the sight of God, they are worshiping idols. And God... God came, Jesus Christ was sent to this earth to cause us to stop worshiping idols. In the Roman Catholic Church, somebody dies, and they all of a sudden say that they did two miracles, which, you know, how they say they have evidence for that is pretty fishy. You know, it has more pol- it's more political than anything else because it's about man. 
And then all of a sudden you can worship this, this saint and the saint will intervene with Christ because the saint cares more about you than Christ does. I mean, this is a fundamental problem because they've exalted man higher than God. So therefore, Mary controls Jesus Christ. The saints control Jesus Christ. Everybody has power over Christ because Christ loves them, but he hates you. So therefore, you have to get them to intercede on your behalf. I mean, it's a horrible system, especially when when Jesus Christ said, you don't need to pray to me. You can pray to the Father. He loves you the same way I love you. And yet they're going, no, Jesus Christ, you, you need somebody to intercede. Because, of course, if you don't have the saints intercede in heaven, then why do you need somebody to intercede on earth? And if you didn't have the priests interceding on earth, they lose all their power. They lose all their money, and they don't want that. So that's the root of the system. I mean, and the irony is is they're exalting man, but what they do by exalting men is creating these hierarchies, these strata of men that, that put people in different categories. And so not all are actually exalted. And all you're doing with that is you're creating an environment where it's possible to create to do some really terrible oppression. Or you could have a system where Christ is the head and all believers are saints. All believers are priests. And you know, exalt Christ and Christ drags everybody up with him. You were talking about oppressing. That's exactly what they do. And I mean during the Middle Ages I mean, it was it was horrible what they would do. Remember, because you say unless the child's been baptized, they go to hell. If you don't have the marriage, if you're not ordained by a priest for marriage, then then you can't be married. They say if you die and you you don't have a priest give you the last rites, the the extreme unction, that at that point in time, that, that that means you'll spend a lot longer in purgatory. And so what they would do is if they politically didn't like something a nation did, they would put them under an interdict, which basically goes, the priests aren't allowed to do any of that. So all your children go to hell. And all your children are now Ill- you know, illegitimate because unless you were married in the Roman Catholic Church, the children are illegitimate. And so this was like this power that they had that they used to destroy people. Talk about the oppression of the Roman Catholic Church. And nobody should think they wouldn't do that now. They just don't have the same power because a lot of their power was broken during the Reformation. When you contrast Roman Catholicism with true Christianity, it's that Jesus Christ came in the form of a servant. That Jesus Christ, that the, the he that is greatest among you must be the servant of all. And this is the pattern that Christ had, is Christ, who is God, humbles himself, comes in the form of a man, comes in the form of a servant, with what he has, serves all. And this is massively contrasted by what you just described with the interdict. By what you, I mean, it's, it's the, you know, instead of all, all those who are saved are saints— all those who are saved are priests. No, we'll set up a small set who are, who are. We'll give them power. We'll set this hierarchy up. We'll put the person at the top of the hierarchy and say he is. We'll just treat him almost as if he is God. He has the power to save sins. I mean, this that is when you see the form of it. It's such a massive contrast between the two. And it's really important to recognize that they are putting the priests in the place of God. They do this more with the Pope, but they put the priests in the place of God too. They say the only way to the Father is through the priest. But the Bible says the only way through the Father is through the Son. But they put the priests in the position of Christ. Forgiveness comes from the priests. The way you have access to the Lord's Supper comes from the priests. The way you can worship comes through the priests. So they put the priests in the place of Jesus Christ. So going back for a minute to uh, the worship of saints that the Catholics have. You know, they, they say that the saints 
You need the saints as an intercessor. You need Mary as an intercessor where they pray to God for you. Uh, but the, the scripture says that we have an intercessor. We have the Holy Spirit who intercedes for us with prayers that cannot be uttered. So, I mean, that's, again, they're, they're just directly contradicting what the scripture says. It says you have an intercessor. Why would you want an intercessor beyond God himself interceding for you? Why would you ever want another intercessor? And, and, so, and so it just becomes, you know, I mean, it's clearly against scripture. I mean, you ask it like it's a rhetorical question. Why would you want that? But we have the patterns in Scripture. When the children of Israel set up the golden calf, they're setting it up while the mountain is smoking in the background where God is meeting with Moses. And meanwhile, Aaron sets up this calf for them and says, this is your God. This is Yahweh. He calls the, the calf Yahweh. And, and, and the reason is because this, the smoking mountain is kind of terrifying, and I can't really trust the what's going to happen to me if I worship that God. Let me make God small, and then I can manipulate that. That's that's safer for me. I'm I, I'm more comfortable with that kind of a religion when God is just a statue there. And they they clearly want to make man greater than that God, right? I mean, because man's greater than the statue. Man's greater than the statue of Mary, and. When they, they do this, they're putting man above God. And, I mean, I think you really see this in, in their view of Scripture because their view of Scripture is that Scripture is authoritative unless it disagrees with the church fathers or the pope, that the pope and the church fathers, they can overrule what the Scriptures say because that's the right interpretation because man's words are more important and have more authority than God's words. So they're setting man above God. You have you have a thing where you drive by the Catholic Church and so you say you might say oh look there's another church that's worshiping God and you know there's different flavors of Catholicism but a lot of it is that church is devoted to it I mean it had the name of a saint on it and that's not something that you know Protestant churches maybe there's a Protestant church named after the saint but it's probably not the same thing where that church might be wholly devoted to the saint or wholly devoted to Mary where they're singing songs about Mary they're praying to Mary they have idols of Mary it's not a church that's worshiping God when you go into it it's just not worshiping God it was very different they had this form of being a church of God but what they're actually doing you know they have Mary's clothes and the, all the relics that you're worshiping the relics and it's just not about worshiping God at all and again it's one of those things that it's very different in the United States than it is in Europe and other places because in the United States I don't know that they have that many relics but you go to the churches in Europe I mean the Roman Catholic churches there they have relic collections still where they go yes we worship this is the church of of St. Peter. So we have, you know, a fragment of the cross where he was crucified upside down and we have his hair and we have, I mean, they say they have, right. And they have all these different, you know, saints and each church then focuses on relics for that saint. And that's what they think has power because it comes from that person, even though it usually doesn't. It's just, well, some of them have enough bones collected. They could make multiple St. Peter's (laughs) or, I mean, I mean, mean, it's a miracle. It is like, you know, it's like the, the bread and the fish. You know, they they just they just multiplied all the different all the different bones and the parts. The the issue of where does the authority uh, come from uh, in the church is pretty critical. And when you have it that it is not scripture, but it is scripture plus the church fathers. I mean, you've really fundamentally changed things because now you've given tradition and the church fathers. And, uh, I mean, the Pope as well, you've given them the opportunity to just change scripture, to rewrite it by their interpretations. And now once they've interpreted it, it's not something where you can go back and check that against the word of God. That is now the word of God, and you have to believe that. 
And I mean, I remember I was doing a tour once and a Roman Catholic started to argue with me about something I said about Roman Catholicism. I'm like, this is what the scriptures say, but that's not what the church fathers say. And he thought that was a good argument. And he was obviously very knowledgeable about Roman Catholicism. And it's like, that was just a man, but no, that was a saint. And that's somebody who should be worshipped. So how can you, how dare you say that he was wrong about his interpretation of the Word of God? And you go, but that's not what it says. And it's really important to recognize that until the mid-19th century, lay people were not allowed to read the Bible in the Roman Catholic Church. That was that was anathema. That was a reason to be cursed and sent to hell was to read and, the Bible. Or executed. Right. And so, so that's how serious they are to say it's the... Man has to be listened to, not God. And I mean, it's just like the you know, it's basically the same thing as the Mormons. And there's more people who say that the Mormons aren't Christians, probably. And the Mormons, they have the Book of Mormon. Well, unless the, they run for president. Well, yeah. <laughs> but the the Catholics, they don't have one book I don't, uh, that contains everything that they add to it. But it's basically the same thing, where you've added that this is basically it's the same as Scripture. They can reinterpret Scripture. And in the end, there's church fathers wrote all kinds of different things. They all contradict each other. So it's more like the Pope chooses which church father he wants to make authoritative because they can't all be because they disagree with each other. I mean, and they do the same thing where they say that it's the authority of men that causes the next man to have authority. So they even the reason that they say that the Pope has authority is because he's comes from Peter, that he's that it's been handed from Peter on down to him. And so they use Matthew sixteen sixteen through 19. Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And so they say everybody's sitting in Peter's seat that were the popes, even though they have 400 years that they can't really connect that, but they ignore that because that would be like truth. Um, <laughs> I mean, just to be blunt, that would be truthful. So instead they go back to Gregory the Great and they trace it back and they basically say Peter's seat has been handed down from person to person and he's the one that can bind and loose. Now Matthew 18 says it's the church that binds and loose and not Peter. And so when Christ is saying this, he's not assigning it to Peter. He's assigning it to the church and those who have faith. And and that runs into an issue, uh, another issue as well, because they also have that uh, the, the Pope is infallible. You know, the statements he makes, that's you know part of the church tradition. And is, to be fair, it's ex cathedra. It's when he's speaking officially. Right, right. So, so you know, basically you have him in the place of God very much, which is, you know, the in Scripture, the history of the early church in Scripture, you don't have Peter, who's supposed to be the first pope. You don't have him being treated that way in Galatians 2, 11 and 12. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. So, so here you have Paul rebuking Peter for a sin. And so it's pretty clear that, you know, Peter was fallible, and that's put in Scripture for a reason to know, hey, don't, he's not, he wasn't a Don't pope. worship man, right? I mean, it's don't worship man is why it's in there, because everybody's fallible. Paul gets into an argument with Barnabas, where clearly both of them were sitting in their argument. And yet, Paul is still a, you know, he's still 
still an apostle. He still has authority when the, the one saint. Said, he's still a <laughs> saint. And he still, when God inspired him to write authoritative books through the Spirit of God, they became authoritative. And so, you know, it's not based on on his nature, which is where they put it, is that, that they have a special nature. They have a special grace that they've received. And that they receive grace to the point where they can control Christ. So they can sell you a certificate that says your sins are forgiven, and you give them money, and then they make God forgive you. Right. And that, and they they do this based on the, the idea of the works of supererogation, which is the idea that you can do more than what you owe God. So then you can build up a debt that God owes you. And they say that the Pope basically has infinite grace that he can dispense because he's so good because he's better than God. And so God owes him. So then God has to pay that debt to him. So if he ordains a priest, that priest now has grace because the Pope has the ability to transfer grace. If he baptizes a child or a priest that he ordained baptizes a child, well, that receives their grace not from Christ. It's received from the Pope. And so that's why that baby you know will be saved, because the Pope gave him grace, because he's the one that forgives. He's the one that gives grace. He's the one who sits in the place of God. And, and it causes – and this whole idea causes problems for the, uh, you know, the legitimacy and authority of the Catholic Church, uh, because when you have that – the fact that the Pope – you know, delegates, the, you know, the grace or authority to, you know, the cardinal and then to the archbishop, bishop, and then down to your priest that like, that's a very real thing. and something you can verify that this person has gotten this thing, you know, in their theology. Um, and so then when you have like, you know, rampant sin, rampant wickedness in an area of the Catholic church, well, if that authority flowed down, the guilt of that sin flows right up. And where if there was a wicked priest, why did the Pope's grace not work for him? That he was able to be a good priest, at least in certain things. But if he's using his office for all kinds of wickedness, that raises real problems. Where, you know, in, in our churches, if someone is wicked, well, they're a false teacher, like the scripture taught about talks about, and it doesn't harm Christ, doesn't harm the authority of the church, doesn't harm any of these things because we recognize that there's wicked people in the church, there's false teachers, and we don't have this whole system that we've made up to give all the power to a man that, that you know, harms the, harms the church. And even in the last couple of weeks in Maryland, they found out that 600 boys had been molested. Well, this is why the Roman Catholic Church does what they do. When they find out a priest has been competing you know, molesting boys, committing pedophilia, they go, but he has the grace from the Pope. So he can't be a pedophile. That's not possible. Otherwise, the Pope doesn't have grace, and that would tear down the whole system. So therefore, you just transfer him because it was just an accident. It was just, it can't be his core nature, or that means the Pope is not the Pope. And so that's why they the Roman Catholic Church, and there's also political things where they think they're the king of kings, so therefore how can the civil magistrate do anything with it? But they typically don't even do much punishment of the priest. They put him in another opportunity to do the same thing, so they'll move him from church to church to church to church, and they'll keep doing it because they go, that's not possible for him to actually be a pedophile because otherwise the pope's not the pope. And so these these doctrines have huge impacts. And when you look historically, I mean, there's 
very clear evidence that the, that a lot of the historical popes, you know, we'll skip the modern ones, but the historical popes, a lot of them were very, very wicked people and very wicked things, completely against all the teachings of the Catholic Church. And so the Catholic theology doesn't require that the pope never sins. But if God appointed one man on earth to be his representative, wouldn't he have picked someone who wasn't completely reprobate? And it just, if he's completely reprobate, why does he have extra grace that he can hand out to other people? It makes absolutely no sense. And, you know, at the time of the Reformation, actually 100 years before that, I mean, it was it – was, you read about what was happening in the Vatican, and it is just as sick and perverse as you can imagine. And that's what the Roman Catholic Church was, and that's what the popes were leading and doing. Right. The only reason why it's not as sick and perverse today is because, like you said, the Roman Catholic Church has lost a lot of its power. I mean, and, they have much less authority and power in the world than they used to. And a lot more people have read the Word of God, which means that they are constrained. Right. The Word of God is powerful. It is sharper than a two-edged sword. When people start to read it, it constrains the priests in what they can do. And so there's more light in the world which constrains them. But to go back, I mean, in the end, what you just said about a minute ago about their view of the priests who commit pedophilia, I mean, in the beginning we kind of framed this as should we view Catholics as Christians? And there's this part of it where when— when Christians look at the, the Catholic Church and say these are Christians, it's a really big deal what we're saying. I mean, it's a it's a bigger deal than what the Catholics say about themselves. When Christians actually look at them and go, these are Christians, we're giving validity to their views. We're giving validity to their beliefs, and we're saying that this is the work of another of, a, of another Christian body to to act in this way and to justify their actions in this way. So, I mean, it's, it, it becomes a really big issue when, when we look at them and say, yeah, they're Christians. There needs to be, I mean, we need to be more active in, in defending the word Christian. We should be active in defending that word. We should be active in defending that label. So, especially when you look at the Old Testament and you see the times that Judah and Israel are judged, it's not that, that Assyria is not judged. But Israel's judged first. It's not that Babylon's not judged, but Judah's judged first. They're judged first. Their judgment is harsher than it was in Babylon and harsher than it was in Assyria. Because not only were they pagan and they were idolaters and they were all these things, they were calling their God Jehovah. They were bringing the name of God, and blasphemy of the name of God is a serious sin. And I think we've we've ignored how serious that sin is. And when Roman Catholics are allowed to call themselves Christians and get no pushback from the Protestant Church, what that means is that we're joining with them. We're basically approving, like it says in Romans 1. And God says you're as guilty as if you approve of it. And God has always judged those who take his name, and they take it in vain. He always judges those harsher than those who are outside. Because to whatever sins that they did, they've also added the sin of blasphemy. So we've talked about some of the rituals. We talked about the things that they've added to it, and 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 in addition to adding things, we've also talked just about how they twist the scriptures and how how there is an appeal to the authority of scripture, but then it's making scripture say what they want it to say. And you know, one of the the really core ones, the the ones that we would object to as Protestants, is the way that they treat the Lord's Supper. You know, and the doctrine of transubstantiation that the that the bread that you eat in the Lord's Supper is the actual flesh of Jesus Christ, and that the wine that you drink is the actual blood, and that it's done by the the priest saying certain words over it actually causes that transformation to happen. At, say, I mean, the, the text for this would be Luke twenty two nineteen, And he took bread, 
gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. There is some tension with this because he's giving them bread and saying, this is my body. And, you know, there's earlier passages where he says, well, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, that you can't be saved. And he doesn't qualify it at all. He just, Jesus says it completely for the shock value in the moment and gets a lot of people mad at him. And so, you know, and there, and there is a wooden literal incorrect reading of that that the Catholic Church has just adopted. Like, hey, we are going to say, okay, you have to actually eat Jesus' flesh and actually drink his blood. And they go through some crazy metaphysics to make it so that this thing that looks and smells and tastes like bread is actually flesh, and this thing that looks and smells and tastes like wine is actually blood. But but it is because the priest does it. And, I mean, it's really, you know, if you ever been at a Roman Catholic service, they'll have the cup with the wine in it, and they'll have a large wafer on top. And when they, they lift it up and they say, this is my body broken for you, and they will break it because they have the ability to sacrifice Christ again. And that's what they're doing in their, their ceremony. They say that they have the power over God, that they can force him to come down to be broken, physically broken, because they're saying it's his body being broken, that he, they're killing Christ. That's what they do on the altar. That's why it's an altar. Roman or Christian churches should not have altars. We have pulpits. We don't have altars. Altars are about killing things. But the Roman Catholic Church have altars because they kill Christ every time they do the, the Lord's Supper in their mind and their, their fantasy of what, what's happening. But just recognize that that's like the ultimate power, right? Because they're exalting man over God to the point where, where during the Lord's Supper they're saying that they can actually force Christ to come down from heaven so that they can kill him again. And that's what they're doing. I mean, it's, it's all about the power of man, the power of man over God. Like, Which is why they get to be priests, because they're actually doing blood sacrifices every time they do the Mass in their mind. Right. And like Jonathan was saying, they, talk, they quote that other passage where he says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. But what he also says in that passage is, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you won't ever die. And this is why they don't want people to read Scripture. <laughs> because if you read that Scripture and you say, if he means my physical flesh and my physical blood, then surely he would mean that you won't physically die. And so there's this. But if you read the church fathers, that's not what they say, Charles. (laughs) You know what I mean? And so there's this part of it where, I mean, like you said, I mean, even when Jesus said it, it's very clear that it's a spiritual thing, which translates to a spiritually living forever. If it was eating his physical flesh and his physical blood, you would expect these. You would expect anybody who did it to never literally die. And so you see this. And so it's just, I mean, you can see it's essential. We cannot let people read God's word. It's essential. We, you know, because in the end. You're going to tell them all these things, and they're not going to make well, sense. Well, even in the passage that we just looked at, when Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper, he's still there. He's still alive. Right. He's right. still whole. Right. Nobody's he, killing him. He hasn't right. died, and yet he's the one breaking the bread and saying, this is my body. He's like, this is, this is the qualification that he didn't give, you know, long time earlier when he said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now he's giving that qualification, hey. This is it. This thing you've done for hundreds of years. This is my body. Right. This is my blood. And I mean, one thing that we've kind of touched on that I think is worth saying very directly, right? The reason that in the mid-19th century that the Roman Catholic Church reversed their position and said people could start to read the Word of God is because people were confronting them with the Word of God. And the Word of God and the light of the Word of God was such that they could not resist the pressure anymore. So when we think about how do you defeat Roman Catholicism, it's really simple. You speak the words of God. 
you speak the Bible, you, talk, you apply the Bible to what they're saying, and that's the way to defeat them. But, you know, and that, that's, you know, they're already have been wounded by that already to the point where they had to say that it was okay for people to read the Bible. But they say that, but they know most Roman Catholics won't, so it's not a problem. Because most because, Baptists don't either. <laughs> right, most Baptists don't either. But they put so much emphasis on the rituals that this is how you're made right with God. This is how your sins are forgiven. It's not by reading the Word of God. It's by making confession. It's saying these repetitive prayers. It's doing all these other things. So because of that, why would anybody bother to read the Word of God? So they still are protecting their system by having their system say there's no power in the Word of God. And you'll probably get it right because you really need to have the priest understand it. That's why one of the mo- the basic doctrines of the Reformation is that people can understand Scripture because that was so contrary to the Roman Catholic view and continues to be contrary to the Roman Catholic view. Another thing with the Roman Catholic Church is that that they're very good, just like with the priests, right? I mean, 1 Corinthians 5 says that if you have sin in the midst of you, that it acts like leaven and spreads through the whole church. So you look at how many Roman Catholic churches had pedophiles that were in the leadership of the church. So you should expect sexual sins to be rampant in the church. So they'll have this look of holiness, but they'll be far from holy. And if you look at it, you know, like I know many Roman Catholics that have mistresses, that's not considered unusual. Um, you know, it's, there's these practices that are out there in the Roman Catholic that, that they're acceptable, Right, and so, and they're still good Roman Catholics, like the mob. Most of the mob members of the mob are good Roman Catholics, because they have this holiness, but it's not real holiness. It's just this form because they they go to church every week. They, you know, they take they confess, they do their penance, they they do all these things. So that makes them holy, even though their heart's very far from God, even though they have obvious sin that other people can see, but. They have the form that the Roman Catholics say that you have to have. It's very much like Corbin, where in the Bible, you know, Jesus Christ looks at the people and say, you don't honor your father and mother. And they go, yes, we do. We've just given everything to the to the temple. We've said it's Corbin, that basically like a, a trust or an annuity that when you die, the rest of it goes. So therefore, we don't have to, because the rest of it's going to go to the temple, I don't have to give anything to my mother or father. And Jesus Christ goes, this is garbage. You've, you've, re- you've eliminated the commandments of God by your traditions. And that's exactly what the Roman Catholics do, is they have these traditions about baptism, these tradition, traditions about, about confession and these other things. So you just follow those, and then you can go do what you want. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of really horrible sin that's accepted in the Roman Catholic Church beyond what the priests do. And you don't even have to do all those things either, because those aren't required you don't have to go to church to be a Roman Catholic. Now it's definitely recommended, but if it you depends, they they're inconsistent. So some say that when you receive that grace from the Pope when you were baptized, that that regenerated you, and then there's other ones that say that you didn't. So it's their their catechism. They don't have any obligation to be consistent or logical in their catechism. If you have some money, a lot of that can fix things, though. In the Roman Catholic Church, money fixes a lot of things because, you know, they're more powerful than God, but you know what's more powerful than them? <laughs> Proverbs ten sixteen says, the labor of the righteous leads to life and the wages of the wicked to sin. And so all these things that they're doing where, I mean, especially confession, right? Confession, you say it's easy to get out of sin. It's easy to have it forgiven. What does that do? Does that produce more sin or less sin? The wages of the wicked 
to sin. That's what it leads to. And so they come up with these systems, and all these systems do. It's like, you know, at the time of the, the Reformation with Luther where somebody goes, oh, I want an indulgence to have my sins forgiven, and he pays ahead of time for an indulgence for robbing, and then he robs the man that he paid for the indulgence. And so, you know, it gets – that's just kind of the picture of this whole system is it doesn't lead to holiness. It doesn't lead to life. It doesn't lead to, to eternal life. Instead, what it leads to is more sin. But it has a nice veneer of, of holiness on it, which is more dangerous than just paganism. Which isn't at all either to say that God didn't use the Roman Catholic Church and, and Catholic actors to constrain paganism. You know, when the conquistadors come in and they just plow through Central America, that's God's judgment on some really wicked things that were happening oh, yeah. in South America before Europeans were here. And it's and they don't take it to worshiping the true God, but they take it a step down from, from sacrificing and, and, 12-year-old boys. And, and I'm not saying that, saying the conquistadors are great heroes either. You know, right. they did some pretty wicked things, but what you have to do is step back and say, well, what's the hand of God doing here? And it's like, just like in the Bible, God uses a wicked nation to destroy another wicked nation. It happens and, and, all the time. And, but with, and without the conquistadors, you would not be going on vacation to Mexico without worrying about the coming of human sacrifice. Of course, it's getting back that way now, but that's another <laughs> story with the cartels. Um, even when they come, we should recognize the power of the Word of God because they do hold to the Nicene Creed. They do hold to certain principles. And so those things put real constraints. The Word of God is a real constraint against sin. And so when they come here, even though you know Cortez and the rest of them weren't great people at all, they still had constraints because there was still remnants of the Word of God in their society, and there were remnants of the thoughts of who God was and who Christ was. And even those thoughts, that little little tiny dot of light, it still had real effects in the darkness. Uh, one other thing is when you have the uh – one of the classic, you know, marks of what is a cult versus what is a, a church is where they say we're the one true church, and you know all the other churches are false churches, and you ha- you can't be saved unless you are uh, part of our our church. Um, and this is something that the Catholic Church says. So you know, in their catechism, it says the Council teaches that the Church, a pilgrim now on earth, is necessary for salvation. Christ Himself explicitly asserted the necessity of faith and baptism and thereby affirmed at the same time the necessity of the church, which men enter through baptism as through a door. Hence they could not be saved, who knowing that the Catholic Church was founded as necessary by God through Christ, would refuse either to enter it or to remain in it. So there you have them saying, you need to be part of the capital C, Catholic Church, to be saved. Now, you know, in the same catechism, they also say, well, you know, actually, there's a lot of other churches that are pretty good, or a lot of other Christians that are pretty good, and in fact, the Orthodox Church, they're, they're very, very, very close to us. So, which, I mean, contradicts this, because here they're saying you have to be part of the Catholic Church to be saved, and there they're saying it's basically completely fine to be part of the Orthodox Church. So, I mean, it's just a complete contradiction. But, I mean, one interesting thing that's here, you know, the whole podcast we've been talking about is, are Catholics Christians? Is the Catholic Church a Christian church? Well, here they're saying that Protestants are not Christian. They also go like, well, you know, you have to know that the Catholic Church is is necessary, and, you know, how do you really know that? But, I mean, really, if you've heard Catholic doctrine, don't you know their teaching on it? So it seems pretty clear that they're saying all Protestants aren't, are unbelievers, even though they still will unify with the Lutherans, will unify with the Anglicans, all kinds of stuff. And here it's pretty good. Yeah, they say, you know, Christ himself explicitly asserted the necessity of faith and baptism. So right there, there's a work. 
And so, you know, he didn't say that. He said that's the result of faith, and that's the result of being saved is you should be baptized. It's not faith and baptism. It's faith. A result of that should be a testimony that you have been saved, in which case you get baptized. So, I mean, after going through all this false teaching, um, you know, you have the question of, well, could a Christian be in the Catholic Church? You know, sure, the Catholic Church is is bad, and they have all this false teaching, but could could you be a true Christian? And, you know, we'll just say, could you be in the in the Catholic Church for decades, um, where you're just, you know, in, in the church? Um, could, it, could it still be partly the true church? Because you have the standard in Revelation, where you have some really bad churches, but they still have, you know, the lampstand. Um, but then there's the threat of if you continue in this, the lampstand will be removed. And I, and I think our point here is that the lampstand has been removed from the Catholic Church. You know, they were going in a bad direction, but then, you know, you look at the Scripture and how clearly they rejected Scripture, and you have the, uh, you know, the Reformation, you know, 500 years ago, this was all hammered out, and they chose one way when another way was open to them. So, you know, how, how can you say that the lampstand is not removed and it's no longer a Christian church? And, and you have the teaching of Scripture that my sheep hear my voice. So how could someone be a Christian for decades, you know, in, and they every day they walk by the Baptist church, the, or every Sunday they go by the Baptist church, they go by the, you know, the Lutheran church, they go by the Presbyterian church, and they choose the Catholic church every time, you know, people talk to them, say, repent and turn to the gospel, and they go to the Catholic church. How can you say that they are that they're a believer. They are not hearing Christ's voice. I mean, I would argue that we have to be really careful because I think there's a lot of people that don't say when they're going to the Roman Catholic Church, you're not saved. That's not what salvation is. And so I think that's part of the point of doing the podcast is more people should be saying that. And, you know, the other thing that I would say is that the idolatry is so central to it. Because if you've been a Roman Catholic Church, they'll have the seven stations of the cross, which are all images of God. You have Christ on a crucifix where he's half naked, not like he was actually crucified. He was naked when he was crucified. And so they do all these things, and they want to put him back on the cross, as opposed to him being the risen Lord, the one that's ruling over heaven and earth. All authority has been given to him. Instead, they want him under the control of man, which is the picture of the crucifix. At some point, if you believe in the true God, how can you stay in a Roman Catholic church that's denying? I mean, I was Roman Catholic, and when when God made me realize that he truly existed, I'm not even saying I was necessarily saved there, but within a week I went, the Roman Catholic church is clearly not Christian. It has clearly nothing to do with Christianity. That was obvious to me immediately. And so, you know, it's just hard for me to see how if you've, and I'm not even saying I had the Holy Spirit then, but if God has opened your eyes to the reality that there is a God who judges, the Roman Catholic Church will give you no peace. It is a, it is a complicated question, and it's a complicated question for us in America because, like we were saying mm-hmm. earlier, a lot of our Catholic churches are very Protestantized. And, and just like in any Baptist church, it's possible to have inconsistent doctrine. Mm-hmm. It's possible that you could be that you could believe the right things, that God could have actually saved you, and that you're not actually following the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. And you might think that you're a Roman Catholic. But the images are so bad and stuff that it's hard to right. see that yeah, that, those and, are the—and the statues to Mary. And God says he saves us from idolatry. Yep. And the thing, too, is, you know, this is 
anecdotal and I'm I'm sure that doesn't apply across the board, but the people I know that were, you know, converted out of Catholicism, they're the most anti-Catholic people. You know, they're the ones who are saying, you know, this is has nothing nothing to do with Christianity. And, you know, the people who are like, you well, like on this podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, you know, you have other people who are like, well, you know, maybe the Catholics are Christians. And the people are like, well, I wasn't a Christian when I was a Catholic. and I became saved and I wasn't a Catholic anymore. And, you know, the people who know more about it tend to be more hard lined against it. And there weren't Christians there. When right. I was there. Right. We should recognize how serious this issue is. When you look at what God says when he grants repentance to a nation, it's because the people who are called by his name, they humble themselves, they turn from their wicked ways, and they cry out for forgiveness, and then God God heals their land. Right now our land's in a really bad situation. I think part of that is is that we don't care who calls themselves Christians. But people who hate God that call themselves Christians, they're not going to repent. They're not going to turn from their wicked ways. They're, the church has to cleanse itself, the true church. We need to be bold enough to say, these are Christians, these are not Christians. This is what Christianity looks like. Or we should expect further judgment on our land. When we are participating in blaspheming the name of God, why would God be pleased with us? Thanks for joining us.